0: Isabelle Legeron of Natural Wine, the book, and also the Raw Wine Fair in London, New York, and also Berlin. Hello, how are you?
1: Yeah, good. I'm really like super happy to be here and uh, chatting with you today.
0: Great to have you here. Thank you. So you're you're French, you grew up in... Uh, I grew
1: up, oh my gosh, yes, I'm I'm 100% French. I mean, uh, I've been living in London for 20 years, uh, but I was brought up on a farm. I was brought up, you know, my family have a vineyard. Um, we had animals, pigs you know, made jams, we had chickens and all of this, and I had to work in the vineyard when I was a kid, which is why I decided quite quickly that I didn't want to be working in a vineyard, and I ran off to university, ended up in London for a job, and then that was 20 years ago.
0: What was the family like?
1: I mean, it was, you know, very very small. We We did everything. It was all hand-harvesting until my, my dad decided actually it was better to have a, 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 a machine and it was better to sort of go down the route of using pesticides and fungicides and so on.
0: So you saw it in your own home, like you saw that change happen.
1: Yeah. Um, my my grandparents, we're like six or seven generation sort of, you know, grape growers in, in, in the Cognac region and everybody in my family is involved with farming. Um, my great, great granddad, in fact, had a a horse and cart and a small distilling machine. And he went from house to house and just, you know, was distilling. So we have one pot still at, at home. Um, and my 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 dad in, I would say, in the 60s, 70s, started to sort of change the way he was farming. He really bought into the dream that if he started to use chemicals, you know, uh, weed killers in the vineyards, and he would not have to work so hard, could go on holidays, and then started the whole process of, of you know, conventional farming. Unfortunately.
0: So that kind of would have happened during your, your childhood.
1: Yeah, I saw it happen. I saw us moving from having teams of, of people, you know, harvesting the vineyards to having just one giant machine just doing the job in, you know, in like a week rather than us working for, for four weeks. I saw, you know, I, I spoke to my grandmother a little while ago because she obviously, she, they my grandparents gave vineyards to my mom and my dad. And when they married, then they brought the whole thing together. And my grandmother um, was telling me what it was like when she was growing up, um, you know, when they were looking for snails in the vineyards. There were loads of mushrooms in the vineyards. I remember going and looking for wild asparagus in the vineyard, you know, when I was little. And progressively, as I was growing up, all of these things sort of began, you know, disappearing for sure. And now I go, my brother is a farmer and took over and he's farming conventionally. And I actually hate going into the vineyards in the back of the house.
0: So how are the holidays? Not so good? You're like, can you pass me? No, actually, I don't even. <laughs> oh I my gosh!
1: You. Yes, so we do not talk about this anymore. Because <laughs> I go there four, you know, four or five times a year, and we use. I, I was like, you know, I used to be a lot more militant and, you know, trying to change him, and now I just think that's his choice. You know, right. I think when you when you farm organically, you really ha- it has to come from the heart because otherwise, you'll never go through with it.
0: Do you ever mess know? with them, or are you ever like? So, how's the wild asparagus this
1: year? <laughs> gosh. No, no, we really don't. And, and I don't, yeah, I don't even want to go into, into the vent. I think maybe my, my nephews, because he, he, one of them is going to take over. And, I'm, and I've, you know, I put him on a, on a job experience with Olivier Cousin, because I thought, you know, hopefully they will, you know, get him thinking. And he came back and actually he's starting asking questions. He's only 20. So, you know, I think um, I've got hopes that maybe he will be the one reverting back to how it was.
0: Oh, maybe well played on your part there. Mm, uh, subtle know. subtle <laughs> uh, move on the chessboard.
1: Yeah, yeah, manipulation.
0: Because your whole I mean, I guess we should just tell everybody your most of your academic career in the writing and the TV and the fairs has really been in the other direction, emphasizing the old ways, natural wine, less intervention. So, did you immediately feel like you know, a paradise was lost, or you know, what was the progression there? Was that something that was clear to you as a kid that you used to like it more before, or was it did it have emotional ties that resonated within your own family for your experience, or how did it work out?
1: It it was a no, it was a progression, and I think it was you know um, just me getting more more mature and more in tune with with my instincts, but you know. You know, when I was a kid, I, I loved how I was being brought up, but I really wanted to see other stuff. So I went to university, I studied business, got a job in London. I was running, you know, like uh, publishing titles and things like this. In the end, but you know, my, my my background, I was really missing the farm, and I was really missing home. And 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 I thought, actually, you know, maybe it's time for me to give in a little bit and actually study, study about wine. So in 2000, I sort of stopped what I was doing and I went and I st- studied the WSET. But when I, when I, even though I was brought up on a, on a grape farm, you know, when I started my studies, I didn't know like a Chablis was a Chardonnay, right? I was starting from like zero, you know, I had zero knowledge, zero culture in terms of uh, the actual wines because I was, you know, my, my, my family makes cognac. So, so it was a, a slow, you know, long sort of learning curve. But as I progressed through my studies with the WSCT, the Master of Wine, afterwards, which, which I did, I realized that, you know, the, the world of wine is actually a very hardcore business driven world. It's not about farming. It's not about being in the vineyard or collecting wild herbs and stuff like this. So I became very slowly sort of disappointed with the industry um, and you know, I, 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 I sort of, I didn't really, for me, like scoring wines and this kind of like intellectualization of wine. I just, I, you know, I did, I don't know, it didn't work for me. You know, I just, I, I became more and more detached and I thought, actually, maybe I've made a big mistake by quitting my job and doing the wine stuff. But at the same time I started, you know, the one moment that, that happened for me was I was researching for a TV program in Hungary. And I was clear that if I was going to go and shoot something in Hungary, I was clear that I needed to find people working with indigenous grapes. So I refused to work with, to showcase Cabernet Franc and things like this. So I asked some people to put together a huge tasting for me in Budapest and I tasted everything blind. It was about 250 wines. And then two wines, I pulled them out of the lot and I said, I want to meet these people because what they're doing is amazing. And the guy said to me, well, it's the same person. It was a guy called Imre Kallo in uh, in Egger, and I said, "Great, take me to him. I want to meet him." And then I there I meet this guy who uh, you know is a forester. He has some vines, organic vines, and he has two hand dug cellars, and he makes 145, 150 different wines in these two tiny rooms, because every barrel is different. Every barrel is an experiment. You know, he does a lot of skin contact, but he wasn't even aware that people were really making orange wines. Uh, he makes a lot of sweet red wines just because they're not fermenting. He, Like everything that, you know, every permutation of that grape variety, he tries it because he loves doing that. He doesn't own a press. He only has very old barrels. And then that's it. You know, they're very simple. And at that moment, when I met him, I just thought that, you know, you don't need multi-million pound facilities to make great wines. You don't need fancy equipments, fancy wineries with big tasting rooms with views over whatever. All you need is commitment, passion, you know, grapevines, and then, you know, just doing some stuff in the cellar. And that was the beginning of sort of me realizing that, you know, there is actually a world out there of people who resonate and who just do, you know, think like I do. And that was sort of, for me, the beginning of then a discovery.
0: So what was the UK scene like at that time, 2000?
1: you know, big Primer campaigns, you know, the Primer was still, you know, super strong, you know, it was, I mean, for me anyway, my reality was, you know, I had to taste all the Doperignon Krug and Cristal, all the Petrus, Ekem, you know, I was on that like, you know. You were on that track. I was, yeah, I was on that track. It was just like completely determined. Um, so, I, you know, I, and I did, and I'm really happy I did all of that because I think it's really important. You know, you have to I really believe that if you want to maybe have an impact on the establishment I really believe it's for me it's better to be inside because then then you can actually say something. So for me it was really important to do all 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 of this. Um and obviously the the scene has changed, you know, it's like over here, you know, over the past 20 years things have changed a lot. For me it was just a really gradual gradual process to to now really.
0: But how many people were there around to talk about those kind of thoughts with like, Hey, I saw this cool guy in Hungary. How many people do you have that conversation with?
1: No one, but I wasn't actually for me, you know, when I, when I, when I went into the wine industry, I didn't really have any peers. Like I knew nobody in the wine industry, you know, it was just I suddenly thought my family grow grapes. Actually, I quite like wine and I quite like the farming. I'm in London. I might as well study in London because, you know, I had my family and and things. So I, you know, I was not in an, in an industry. So You know, and I was doing television, you know, I happened to sort of do actually quite a lot of television because I I was good at presenting and I I loved food. So I didn't really have, you know...
0: For me, kind of looking at the career, it kind of seems like you're okay with being an outsider. I don't know if it's something you seek out, but it's something that certainly when it happens, you're fine with it.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've always, you know, know, my... it's It's not a choice, but my my love for the farms and, and the types of wine that I work with in any way always put me, you know, on a, I was always an outsider, you know, I, you know, I was the one writing essays that would be defending natural fermentation and and the non-use of sulfites. All, all throughout my life, you know, at at home, I was always the one reading the books and wanting to go to the theater, but my, my, you know, it's not really something that my my family did. I was just uh you know, I've always sort of, whenever I want something or I believe in something, I just go for it. But I don't really ask. You know, I jump and I hope the parachute sort of opens. That's kind of how I've always behaved. You know, and when I became an MW, I was like, okay, at this point, I have two options. You know, either I can just go and actually follow a pretty, you know, probably sort of quite a lucrative career and being an master of wine and and having you know job, you know, job, premium, whatever I wanted to do, or I just say, well let's just go through with this and see what happens and create a reality, you know, create an event around what I believed, uh, you know, try and get a book published, you know, sort of basically sort of carve a niche out of, you know, in a way that didn't exist, you know, it's...
0: So did you see anything like that in the publishing world from before where you're like, you know, it's kind of important to grab hold of a niche? Like, had you had some idea that, you know, having a niche is a good thing to do or did it just kind of happen?
1: No, it was just, it's like in anything you know I th- I, th- I really believe that um, you, ca- you I really believe you can do anything you you, you want you know and and, and, and and you know I think if you put your, your your if you follow your heart and you put the work and and you put the hours anything is achievable I mean I, I think you know if you decided suddenly actually I don't want to be doing this radio stuff anymore I want to become the world expert in absinthe you know and you go and spend two years developing your own you know, absinthe, I'm sure you'd be probably a world leader in absinthe. You know, I, I think anything is possible. And I think the, the, the key for me and why I've never, um, you know, why while I have, you know, it's been really hard work, but I've always followed my instinct. I've always followed what I felt was the right thing for me.
0: It also feels to me like you caught it at a moment where it was comprehensible. Like there weren't so many thousands of people that you had to talk to in the natural wine world when you got in. Like, if you'd said, you know what, I'm going to be the world's foremost expert in Chardonnay. That would have been a lot of air miles. That would have been a lot of travel. That would have been a lot of talking to a lot of people in a lot of different climates. But, you know, you're like, hey, it's 2000, 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in natural wine. I mean, how many people is that? Mm -hmm. That's a few hundred people. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was, and and, and particularly with with my training and being an MW, championing sort of, you know, natural wine, low intervention, organic, biodynamic, you know, wines. um, It's you know, it also gave me in a way, you know, sort of, I guess people listened to what I had to say because I came from a classical background. Right. um, And that really helped as well, for sure.
0: But it, I understand that you came from a classical background in terms of the imprimatur of the MW, which obviously clearly helps when you're trying to get articles published, or especially in London, I feel like. But where I don't think you came from a classical background is to actually grow up on a farm, because I don't see so many MWs who did. Now, obviously, there's like Zindhumbrech and others, but it's not so common. And what I think about natural wine is that it seems to have come from the growers, as opposed to the previous kind of thing. Uh, which I would have said came from critics or marketers and uh, or business people, and so because a lot of times here I see people who want to ascribe natural wine to an importer or to a critic, but i I don't think that those came first. I think that people who didn't want to get cancer by working in the vineyards in a natural way came first, and then everything else followed, or am I wrong? Mm,
1: yeah, I think I think I, of course you're not wrong um the and the grower is really you know, where the inspiration comes from. And I think it's also where the, for me, where the strengths come from in terms of, you know, how much I've learned, how much I've developed. Uh, I have learned more from spending time with the growers and having dinner with them and spending the whole day and talking about their vines and their plants. I have done in reading, you know, all these books about viticulture of of winemaking. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question.
0: Well, I feel like there was this whole culture that was like, we don't really care if the establishment cares about us. Mm -hmm. We're going to do our thing. They'd seen so much pushback from the conventional side. They're like, cool, people don't want to write about us. We're still going to be friends. We're still going to drink the wines we want. We're still going to make the wines we want. They developed such a strong community. And then that became appealing. And then it grew and grew and grew. And then you show up at some point and you're like, hey, I'm in the establishment. And also, I'm super interested. They're probably like, wow, first one. Or, you know, they are probably not so many. So, I mean, what was that really like? I'm, I'm just guessing, right? But uh, what was that like? Because what I see now, even to this day, is a natural wine community, that's kind of like, yeah, maybe we'll let you in. Like, maybe you're legit, maybe you're not, you know? So, what was it like when you reached out to some of the people in the grower world and how did they receive you?
1: It always... Um... It's always been, you know, really easy and 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 great. And and I think, you know, I think the the growers who work with nature have really strong intuition. And I think they, I don't know, I think they are really, I think they 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 can feel whether you are, you know, trying to sort of, I don't know, just ride the the kind of the. Fashion wave, or whether you know you're one of them, you know whether you actually really care about nature. Because to be honest, fundamentally, for me, the the the, the beauty of these growers is, is is the love and the really deep respect for for, for nature. And natural wine is just an expression, it's just a transformation of of this agriculture. You know, I think fundamentally, these men and women are they are really in tune with, um, with nature. They're, I think they're in tune with people. And I think um, it's quite easy, actually, if you're, if you're genuine. I think it's quite easy to be part of this community because it's, it's a really loving community and it's quite a big community. You know, there are people everywhere. Um, but everybody's always been super, super welcoming, super generous with their time, their hospitality. Um, you know, even if they may maybe, you know, you just go in and crash on the, on the sofa, because there's already 20 people staying there. or um, But I, I think it's quite easy to to go into that community. They, they really, really are very welcoming.
0: So did you find it harder on the other side of your life? Like on the more of the wine trade side? Was that more of an uphill climb?
1: It wasn't a fit. You know, I'm not very good at like, you know, being in, into a, a dinner where everything is sort of, you know, you have to dress up to attend a dinner where, you know, then you have to have like very serious pairing where there's like really long talks over what the vintage conditions were that year. I don't really have a lot of time for that. You know, I like to have, you know, really honest conversation, maybe something that's cooking on the stove, just a soup, you know, a piece of bread, like really, you know, the wines that they make and just talking about, you know, what they're doing and, and how they're using you know these plants and, you know, to, to help you know, heal the vines or build the the hum- immunity system of the plant, which is, you know, a lot of people, are, are you know, are working with, for example. So for me, it's just I never really, I never was really sort of super comfortable. I've got a lot of friends in the conventional wine world, of course, you know, all my peers, you know, that I studied with or, um, you know, a lot of buyers or, you know, of course, and, and I have a lot of respect and, and I, you know, like there's really no issue and I really like them. It's just for me, I'm, you know, I'm not, it just doesn't, it just doesn't really feel very comfortable. I'm not at home. Whereas when I go into, you know, and spend some time with some of the growers, I'm just really at home, you know, very simply.
0: I mean, I've met a lot of people in the wine world who are specifically trying to engage with the luxury side because that's not where they're from. They want to be have that part in their life because that's what they got in the wine trade for, to engage with the luxury side. I'm sure mm. you've met people like this. Yeah. You know. And I
1: think, you know, wine has become a status symbol, you know, like knowing about wine… Um, in a way means that you're successful. It means that you've used, uh, you, you know, a little bit about wine, you know, you can afford, obviously, you know, good wine. I don't know. I think we've become so intellectual about wine. We think too much about wine in a way, you know, wine is, of course, you know, and look at, you know, <laughs> look at all uh, your, like your piles of books. And of course, there's so much going on, you know, in terms of terroir and, and, and all of this. But I think at the same time, it's really important to remember that wine is a is a food, you know, wine is an agricultural product. Wine is actually really simple. It doesn't have to have this huge, you know, position on, on a pedestal, um, you know, with a whole industry feeding off that, a whole industry discussing the vintage variations. And, and I'm not saying there's not a room for that, but I think what we've done in the wine industry by elevating wine to such a position is we've alienated a lot of people who who feel intimidated by it, who don't feel they can taste the wine and trust their instinct, they will tell them that the wine is actually pretty good um, because they'll be worried that maybe this critic said, you know, this wine is not good or that they're not going to enjoy it. You know, for me, the greatest pleasures I've had is, is with people doing a tasting, showing people wine. They know nothing about it. I don't even really tell them that much but seeing that they are actually really enjoy it or they can take you know they can pick out quality if you listen to your instinct your body knows if it's a good wine if the wine is really good quality i really think that
0: there does seem to be a digestible quality to some of my favorite natural wines like i find them easy mm. to drink
1: yeah for sure i mean that's one of the i think for me is, you know when i taste a wine is it's is it something that i would actually really want to drink or is it just something i'm Intellectually enjoying tasting because it's, you know, showing me maybe various you know, variations in the terroir or something like this. But I think fundamentally the, the beauty of, of natural wine is, is the fact that it is highly digestible. It's very Moorish.
0: So who were some of the key people that you met that had kind of founded the scene or were pillars of the scene in the natural community when you started to enter into it yourself?
1: Well, for me, one of the most inspiring characters is, uh, is spending time with, you know, Pierre Auvernois. Uh, because he you know he's obviously been doing it for a long time when you, when you spend time with with him you, you learn a lot about uh, his his um the fermentation process he's very good at explaining you know uh details about the yeast population that he would be observing and deciding when the, the the vintage would be going on um he's always you know so generous that we we you know i've i've been very lucky to taste like really old stuff with him um and in a, you know he's like a a, a gentle giant of the natural wine world, and and really in, really inspiring, and and you know a whole bible and a whole history. So for me, he's a he's, he's a you know he's a very precious person. Um, I also enjoy spending some time with uh, Jacques Néoport because he he has influenced a lot of people around the Loire, the Beaujolais, the Rhone. You know he he's really the one who I think articulated sort of Jules Chauvet's you know, natural winemaking and help a lot of growers make natural wines. So he's also a wealth of of stories, of anecdotes, of knowledge. But actually, he's not very good at sharing because he's an incredibly shy character and doesn't, you know, he doesn't really like the limelight. You you, you know, you don't really know his, he, he was around so much in... You know, in in crafting really amazing wines, even you know with 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 um, Chave and obviously La Pierre and Breton and and and, and so on. Um, so there's there's a raft of people who, and um, you know Didier Barral When you spend some time with him, and you really begin to understand the importance of uh, non farming, the importance of the model of the forest when you don't do any intervention, the perfection of 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 the forest in in absorbing all the all the water or, or dealing with uh, with uh, drought, so you know his approach to farming is is really amazing, and I think you know when you meet people who just pursue their own journey in their own vineyard in their own terroir, who are not afraid of experimenting, who are like beautiful observers of of their piece of land, um, you know they they really they really go through the whole process. And that's, for me, that's that's the beautiful art form, the, the the proper craft of what these people are doing. And there, there's so much to learn, you know, I think, from these people.
0: So you've mentioned the word experiment a couple of times. And for me, here in New York, that's often a term that comes up from people who are critical of natural wine because they say, oh, I want a good wine, not an experiment. They want something that's, like, established, you know. And But do you feel it's still experimental or do you feel like people... Or some people have figured it out or is there something that, you know, has shown to work or is it still kind of like, I don't know, let's, let's see.
1: There's no rule book, you know, no one's written the guide to making natural wine, right? Um, I think the, the minute you, 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 you expect something which is not an experiment, then you go into a recipe that is relying on a lot of gadgetry or additives so that you always have this very reliable outcome uh, which is probably something that you would use in, in a lot of the food industry for example um, if you start working with nature I think a you realize that uh, it's never the same that you know you have proper vintage variation that the vintage is going to throw elements that you've never seen before and you don't have the tools like you know whether, whether it's sort of adding a lot of bunch of sulfites on the on at crushing because there's you know bacteria you want to get rid of or you know so you don't necessarily have that toolbox that a lot of people are using and you know that people are teaching about it at university you're on your own and inevitably you're experimenting i think if you speak to all the growers out there even people who have been making a lot of vintages and maybe you think they're not experimenting i think for me experimenting is 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 part of of the journey you know, I don't. I don't think it means. I, for me, that's not a negative. I think if you stop experimenting, I think you're probably dead. You know, and then you might as well. Then you might as well just rely on all your gadgetry because it's a. The outcome is a given. Um, when you work with nature, you know that you're not in control. You just have to really trust that the work you've done in the vineyard, in the end will we'll, we'll work out because nature also is, is beautiful, you know, and, and it doesn't always work out. But I think, of course, you're always experimenting.
0: So it's interesting for me here in that answer and then also reading your book, how much the idea of kind of a quest is uh, alluded to, if not necessarily articulated. And I, I mean, do you see it as kind of like a, a heroic quest? The people are referred to in kind of heroic terms when I read things you've written.
1: You mean me, me uh, saying that they are like heroes, Yeah. all these? Uh, because I really think they are. You know, I think, look, who who, in this day and age, right, who, you know, most people will, will lead a pretty safe life, okay? Um, here you have people who... Basically, walk on the tightrope without a safety net, and at any point they could lose everything that they that they're doing. Okay, so already you're like in this scenario where every step that you make is 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 you know is is full of risk, where you could actually lose your vintage. Um, you know, they they put everything. You know, um, of course there are growers who probably do it because you know it sounds good, it sells. You know, they use the word natural or whatever. But really, fundamentally, if you are going to be walking that walk you have got to to do it 100% and um, you throw everything that that you have you do you know you're 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 there you get to know your vineyard you get to know your vines because you know that your vines are everything um absolutely they 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 are they are they are reinventing everything, you know. They are, they are the guys who are, and women, but, you know, collectively, who, who are understanding the role of, of some wild herbs, you know, how that can help the health of the vineyard. You know, they are real innovators. For me, they, yeah, clearly they are, they are, yeah, they are heroes. So mm.
0: do you see it in a way that this knowledge existed before and then was lost in sort of a dark age and now has come back by people like you're talking about? Or do you see it as, like, these are new discoveries that are you know brand new or how does it work i mean did someone know at one time that the herbs were going to do this and then we sort of lost that in a culture and now it's coming back or is it are we at the cutting edge or are we at a what i would think of as a traditional revival
1: i think probably a lot of it is is knowledge that we used to have um i'm sure that you know if you look at biodynamics you know biodynamics is really when you take into account very simply, you know, at a very basic level, when you take into account the, the lunar cycle, you know, this is a, a force that we've been working with for millennia. What I mean is is you know, it's not Rudolf Steiner in 1924, 25 who said, you know, we need to use the the power of the of the moon. So a lot of the of the wisdom which is being used, uh, and maybe it was not necessarily used in in vineyards, or maybe they were herbs that were used for for healing something else but i I think a lot of the knowledge you know was there, but you know i am sure a long time ago, i mean, I don't have any you know this is just for me being you know quite um you know i think this is more of a sensical commonsensical answer. I think a lot of what we're using and and whether it's herbal remedies or was used and has been used for a long time, but I, I think what happened, you know, with the the First World War, the Second World War, you know, and, and the advent of of using so much stuff in the vineyards and pesticides and things, I think it's it's something that got lost. You know, when I speak to my grandmother and I I, I ask her about you know herbs like yarrow or uh, which I use at home, you know, it's something that she would have used, but then my my parents didn't use it that much. So I think that throughout the ages, I, I you know, I'm I'm sure that a lot of of that knowledge that people are using now, was used, you know, maybe a millennia ago. I'm pretty sure of it. So if you speak to, for example, Daniel Piccini in the Veneto, he, um, he distills and collects wild plants around his vineyards, distills them, and then uses it to spray and help combat, you know, disease. Right? More or less successfully. You know, he's had successes. Sometimes it doesn't work so much. You know, he's also using a process called um, spaggiare which is basically he's got a pizza oven and he will burn down the plants to their white ash. This is, this is alchemy, you know, and it, it's, a, it's a process that was used a long time ago. And he's reviving this, you know, because he believes that really makes a big impact. So he's, distil- he's basically burning all the plants down to their white ashes. And then he's um, using that in, in, you know, alongside distilling other plants and spraying that on the vineyards. So these are very old very old traditions, but I think what we what we're seeing now is, and I think it's true of any industry. I think it's true of any farming or bread making or cheese making. Is I think now we're we're really embracing a lot of the very traditional methods, and I think we're applying maybe some you know sometimes some science, or, or you have really dedicated young people who are trying that out, um, and, and, and in a way, I think they are um, they're understanding better, they are, they are, you know, using it for, you know, maybe in a more, more specific way, but I think what we're doing is we're rediscovering a lot of these very ancient traditions, for sure, rather than, you know, things being suddenly it's something which is brand new or, or something.
0: So I like to wander around art museums, and uh, I often go to the medieval area because uh, there's not a lot of people there. It's not like going to Impressionism where you have to fight through. And um, so there's these books of hours, book of hours. And they um, they were prayer books, but they were also agricultural books. They were like manuals that people looked at and kept with them. And the relationship between when you're supposed to do some farming activity in terms of like plowing. And then when you're supposed to pray is very articulated in these books with pictures. And so for me, when I, I'm not a farmer. And also I haven't read Steiner in the original. But for me, when I think of what biodynamics is, it seems like a reemergence of this tendency, but without the God picture. So, do you see a religious overtone or a religious undertone to some of these procedures that's kind of latent in old Europe?
1: Not particularly, but that's maybe because I'm not sort of super versed in in you know I, I don't really think religiously. Um, I don't really, you know, for me, my my main sort of religion, I would say, if anything, is 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 is, is nature, and I really believe in the greater power of of, of nature and the greater order uh, of of nature, and I think, if anything, I would say that biodynamics or that these practices are actually very pagan, and it's it's more of a respect of the cycle of of nature. You know, one thing which is interesting, I think, with the horse ploughing, which we could say is a pretty traditional, uh, you know, way of farming, farming with animals. When you plough with your horse, you have to follow the rhythm of nature. You have to, you cannot plough if it's too hot because your horse cannot do it. Which means actually, you're not really disturbing the earth when it's when it's too hot, and you're not evaporating all this precious humidity in 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 you know in the soil, for example. You know, so so I think the the the, the rhythm, and I think being you know, a lot more in touch with, you know, greater forces, you know, planets and stars and and, and so on. And, you know, for me, it's more, uh, which, you know, maybe sort of dynamic <laughs> followers are going to say, you know, what are you saying? For me, it's more, it's more in touch with pagan sort of beliefs and, and a deep respect for like natural cycles. Uh, and I think what we're seeing now in farming you know is a return to this. It's something that we had before, where where polyculture was the norm, where you had your 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 in a way, a holistic farm, you know, where you had your animals, you grew your wheat, um, you had your chickens running around fertilizing, you had, you know, you had every everything was was in equilibrium in, in a way. Because you know, monoculture doesn't exist in in in, in nature. We created that. Um, so I think if anything, what we're seeing now where people are reintroducing animal husbandry, for example, is very simply a return to, you know, the old farming tradition that was maybe more based on self-subsistence. But people are realizing that it makes sense. I know everything plays a role. Everything everything connects, you know, the, the role of the, of, the, of the animals, the roles of the insects of the different flowers, and all of this basically contributes for me to the much bigger picture.
0: So what's the payoff for the drinker? I mean, why choose that bottle as opposed to another? I get the idea of, you know, being on a quest, that alone could be stimulating and fulfilling. I get the idea of reconnecting with the lost past that that alone could be stimulating, fulfilling. I get the idea of not wanting to get cancer, not wanting to use pesticides, not wanting to use herbicides. But in terms of the person who's picking at the retail level, who's saying this one or that one, what's the payoff for them?
1: First of all, uh, if we look at the, the just the farming, you know, if you're not getting killed because you're actually farming it, you know, you, you, you know, when you farm conventionally, you actually have pesticide residues in your bottle. So that's number one. You know, that's, uh, for me, it's a, it's a choice of, of what I'm putting in my body, you know. I, I, it's exactly the same thing when I go to the supermarket and I pick this product over this one because, you know, it's not GM and it's organic. And so, so that's my first commitment. And I think with wine, they, obviously, there's that same, it's the same mentality. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people believe that, you know, if it's wine, it's just pressed out of the ground, put in a bottle and, and nothing else has happened. So I think first off, there is the, the, the clear element of the pesticide residues. So that's you know so that's that's a very simple farming question right and what you put in your body um and then there's the there's the winemaking um angle I really I really believe for me that wine has to be a representation of uh, that piece of land at that moment uh in time so that particular vintage and I think if you and I I believe that if you drink wines made naturally where you haven't had, you know, haven't used all types of gadgetry to maybe zap out excess water, zap out excess sugar, where well, you can really rectify in a way the the, the vintage variation. Um, you know that you are getting a frank representation of that wine in that year. Similarly, I think that if if you let the wine ferment naturally, then yeast is part of terroir. You know, and I think the multitude of 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 the yeast population. Uh, if you look under a microscope, um, and you have uh, juice just you know coming from from an organic vineyard, and picked at the right moment when the population is at the right stage of diversity, um, then suddenly you 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 know you have a wine which will have greater complexity and be a greater sort of showcase of that terroir because yeasts are part of 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 terroir. So I think every time for me that you you add something or you remove something. um, I think that you take away from that idea that we all talk about, which is that this idea of, 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 terroir.
0: Because sometimes what I hear in terms of criticism of natural wine is that the faults get in the way of expressing the terroir of the place. So how would you respond to that? Like the idea that, yeah, it's too volatile or it's too bready or it's too something else or it's too airplane glue and for that reason, I can't get the terroir. So what do you think?
1: I think that's a an exaggeration. If I look at all the wines I've t- tasted recently, um, yeah, maybe sometimes there's a little bit of bread, but to be honest, there's a little bread in, in a lot of what people will call, you know, Bordeaux terroir or Rhone terroir. You know, they, they, they very often there's there's uh, an expression of bread in there. Um, volatility is it's the same. I think these these faults are actually not that present to me in, in, in natural wine. You do find wines that are, you know, slightly, slightly faulty. You do find conventional wines that are slightly faulty. Um, this is, I, I don't think you can generalize and talk about natural wine and say that, you know, they're all, you know they're, a lot of them are faulty and a lot of them are not an expression of, of terroir.
0: You would agree that people do do that, though, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. I've seen people. I'm not saying I do, but I'm, I've seen people do that quite often.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. But it doesn't, it's not because they, 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 you know, they do that, that it's a, it's a, it's a reality. I think what I find is, is, you know, when I get, when I hear criticism of people saying, oh, I had that wine, oh my God, it was too volatile or, um, it was too funky or I sort of, I, I, I accept that, but what wine was it? And, you know, nine times out of 10, the other person is actually incapable of giving me the, the name of the grower or the name of that cuving.
0: I've experienced that as well. Like they don't want to name the name. Yeah, and you're they like, don't what want... does that mean? They're, They're like, don't... well, I don't want to offend somebody. And you're like, well, yeah, but you're offending a whole category. If gonna, if yeah. You, you have to, I mean, if you want to submit evidence, I'm happy to review it. Well, yeah, but, but you have to tell me the name.
1: Exactly. And also, I think then you can we can be on the same uh, wavelength. You know, then if they say to me, it's because it's this producer, and I say, Okay, well, maybe maybe you have a point, and maybe in that vintage something happened or whatever. Or then I can say, well, I completely disagree with that. And then we are just looking at different ways of assessing what a fault is. You know, that's that's something. The other the other thing I I think is like people who often say that I find that actually they haven't really tasted natural wine. They haven't really gone to the trouble of meeting the people, or so their tasting experiences uber limited maybe they've had a few and maybe they thought actually it's not worth it that's fine but i I find that very often people who say that is just shows a lack of of tasting experience for me
0: do you think the line on what is a fault is changing or is in discussion of you know whether that's a plus or a minus
1: you have good questions
0: i mean for instance i like volatile city when it's chateau moussard i happen to enjoy that yeah i like the wine and they say, yeah, it's a little volatile. We do it that way, you know. And I like ninety Monroes. It's got a lot of bread. I like the wine. So,
1: yeah, sure. But does that mean that it's changing? I mean, I think the I think the perception of what a fault is really differs from from you know one person to another. And for me, you know, in a way, you know, I love this quote by um, the guys at uh, Clou Perdu who said, you know, uh, perfection is flirting with faults. Um, and I think. That's for me. That what, in a way, nat- natural wine is because it's it's that's what nature is. You know, you don't, you know, it's like when you meet somebody, you want people to have spikes and be interesting and and exciting, and maybe sometimes you're not going to like it because it's going to rub you, uh, you know, the wrong way. But it doesn't mean that you should dismiss it as a terrible person. And I think wines is 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 a bit like this. And and um, you know, which is why I really when I when when I hear this criticism, I just I, I need to know what people are talking about because I, I I think very often there's just a discrepancy or there's just a, a different reality. Um, if somebody, of course, expe- expects you know this kind of like squeaky clean, the same year, the same one, you know, year in year out, and but sometimes it is something that maybe has a little bit of vol- volatility, or maybe they'll they'll be completely surprised and 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 hate that. And I think that's also part of our challenge is is that. I find very often that people are tasting with um with blinkers you know and and we taste and people taste with their eyes uh so when you give them a certain type of wine particularly you know for example a sauvignon blanc people will have an idea as to what the sauvignon blanc should taste like because in our head, we've got these this, this Sauvignon Blancs that have been fashioned for 30, 40 years, you know, made pretty much with the same yeast all around the world. So suddenly, you know, this is what a Sauvignon Blanc tastes like. And then you give them something, you know, made by Alexandre Bain or, or, or Sébastien Riffaud, um, who, who goes through full ripeness, full mallow, no sulfites, no fining, no filtering, and they are exposed to something completely different. And I think... You know, the beauty of wine is the diversity, and we have to embrace this diversity, basically, and get rid of, you know, it's, in, in a way, it's almost like rediscovering wine, you know, because the face of, of modern wine now is only, you know, the first yeast came about in the 1970s, really properly commercially. So, you know, this, this new face of wine is 40-year-old, right?
0: So what about ageability? Sometimes I hear people say, ah, natural wines, got to drink them young, they don't age very well. I mean, what's your experience with that?
1: I think again it's it's like lack, lack of um lack of tasting experience. Um and I don't I don't blame people who say that because you know we, we are we are in a society where you know even with natural wine we just drink them and we drink them and, and no one really actually buys wines, collects them, aids them and then like takes them out, you know, in in, in ten years. We're not really in, in in that stage. Um but if you go and visit growers, if you get people to sort of take out older examples of wines made completely naturally, you will see that actually there's a tremendous aging potential in those wines. I mean, I have had countless experiences of, of wines. I mean, I I sell a, a little bit of wine myself, you know, whether it's, you know, tasting with Pierre Auvergne, stuff back from, back from the 1950s, um, or some, you know, other producers where, you know, who, who work naturally and, and they get out like a 10-year-old, 20-year-old, 30-year-old wine, which is completely alive which is, you know, vibrant. You know, for me, there's no doubt that you can age wine without any sulfites.
0: Leaving side over a while, which is hard for some of us to get sometimes mm-hmm. now, what would be other examples of wines that are made in a natural idiom that have aged well?
1: Well, if you look at uh, DRC, I think it's a very good example. You know, they have made wines without any sulfites. Um, I, I, had, um, I happened to sort of share a bottle of 1969 with a friend, uh, who had it lying around in his in his cellar, you know, just a von um, romane. and then I spoke to to the guy who made it, and he said, oh, I did about twenty parts or twenty five parts, you know, at bottling, you know, and that's a nineteen sixty nine wine, and it was singing, and it was when we poured it, it was quite shy, and then it was just like an explosion of of fruits. There were still some so almost not primary, but it was, you know, still still quite overt like utterly delicious and the wine just like you know we decanted it and we drank drank it throughout the day and it's just like a really, really beautiful beautiful wine. The thing is not all wines are made to be matured either. You know, you have wines that are made for early consumption. You also have terroirs that lend themselves better to maturity. I'm sure it's easier to make wine if you're like on Etna and you've got this amazing terroir and this amazing minerality that's also really helping with, you know, pH and and, and complexity. Uh, it's probably, you know, easier to make uh, long-lived wines than, rather than if you're like somewhere on the flats with extremely rich soil. Or, or you can also make, you know, make decisions in your winemaking process. But I think not all wines are meant to be to be aged, but not all conventional wines are made to be aged.
0: So if you could have... Early drinkers and ageable wines, wines that are reflective of terroir, and wines that are more complex from the natural idiom. Why are so many producers resisting going in that way? It seems like it offers everything that someone could want. Why wouldn't they do it? Because it seems that many are not.
1: Not everybody's that way inclined. You know, I think you have to really you have you have to really have it in you. You know, some people prefer to be on the safe side. You know, if you've developed Also, uh, uh, like a marketplace, an expectation of the market of that your wines are going to be like this and you sell well. You know, some people might not really want to take the risk. And, you know, I think you really, it's a decision that needs to come from the heart. You know, I've seen so many people. In fact, I was doing a talk in Austria two years ago. And they invited me to talk because they were, it was a big marketing conference and they, they wanted me to sort of talk about my experience with raw wine and natural wine and why they should be going in that direction because it's obviously the future. You know, that was the kind of like my remit. And I said to them, I said, you know, if you go into this direction because it makes marketing sense, you know, no one, none of you is ever going to be successful because it's it's a challenge. Every day you have to, you know, it's every day you have to, to go through obstacles, challenges, nature, the market—you know—so clearly, it really takes a very specific type of person to go down that route. I don't think everybody can do it.
0: Is it harder to scale? Is it harder to make more production?
1: I think so. Look, I think in in my experience, I think you know, people who make tops fifty to sixty thousand bottles is a bit of a stretch. You know, I find that a lot of, a lot of growers farm between about five and maybe 12, 15 hectares, maybe, but then you need to have, you know, a bit more manpower, but it's basically whatever is manageable humanly, you know, with one or two people, you know, so you can keep the contact, so you know your vines, so you can walk your vineyards, uh, so you know the juice that comes in, uh, so you can keep an eye on, on, on the juice and, and be there. You know, the minute you start. You know, having a bigger team, and then I think you just lose the touch, really.
0: So I get the situation about not wanting to use herbicides, not wanting to use pesticides, being very careful about inputs, but why is sulfur such a, an issue? I understand that less additives are typically good, but what is so harmful about sulfur? Because it does seem to be a kind of a sybillis of whether you're a natural wine producer <laughs> or not, it seems like, but I don't quite get why that particular thing is so important.
1: Obviously it's just one of the elements. I guess, you know, from a practical perspective, you know, sulfur is quite easy to measure. People have focused on it a lot because it says contain sulfites, you know, on the bottle. So I think it's it's an additive that people are very familiar with. And in a way it's um it's a question that comes up quite easily from a just a, a wine drinker out there, they pick up the bottle, content sulfites. ooh, what does that mean? Um, so I think there's a lot of confusion and, and, and maybe it's worth explaining that when he says content sulfites, actually doesn't mean anything because content sulfites can be anywhere between, you know, from 10 parts per million all the way to 150 to 200 parts per million to 400 parts per million per liter, right, which is actually a, 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 a lot. Um, content sulfides is, for me, is just a ridiculous mention on a label. You need to have a number attached to it. I I actually personally react to sulfites, right? So um, at home or at home or anywhere, I I don't buy wines that have more than twenty to thirty parts because I I don't enjoy them. I don't like drinking them. I get um, palpitations from them. You know, I, I'll I'll have a, I'll have a, a dull headache the next morning. I'll know definitely that I've had um, you know uh I've drunk wines I had maybe a bit more sulfites than I wanted to. And even if I do a tasting, I recently well recently a couple of years ago I did a tasting, because um, you know, somebody really twisted my arm to taste a whole bunch of stuff, um, with quite high levels of sulfides. And I actually had mouth ulcers from tasting it simply because I'm not used to putting that in my body. So I've developed a bit of a I would say intolerance to sulfites. And in fact, you know, when you, from a medical perspective, um, and again, I'm not making any claims, so there's research that's been, you know, obviously that's ongoing and it's very easy to read about it. But some research seems to suggest that when you put the combination of, of wine, of alcohol and sulfites together in your body, it um, inhibits your body's ability to actually digest the alcohol. So the, this this combination, from a health perspective, makes it harder. Which means you're, you're actually your your the alcohol is in your body for you know for longer. Just to put it really simply, and and they've they've done studies that show that actually when you when you drink wine without any sulfites, that um, you know your body assimilates it better. So there is you know this also medical aspect because I know people always say yeah, but there's sulfites in in apricots and there's sulfites on salads, but then you don't have that alcohol element as well that, you know, that contributes to, to the impact of sulfites on your body. From a, um, a living perspective, you know, f- the beauty of, of natural wines is they're alive, right? They're alive in the vineyard. When you make the wine, they literally have, you know, bacteria. They literally have yeast. You know, there's a vibrant community in, you know, in your wine. There's a microbiology happening. And when you, when you use sulfites, well, you kill bacteria you knock out the yeast population. So you physically actually take away some of that aliveness, um, which is why f- f- for me, it's, it's, uh, it really changes, you know, what your, what your wine is going to turn out to be. Uh, You can change, you know, if you add add loads of sulfites, you can literally stop the malolactic fermentation from happening. So for me, that's part of the the developmental process of of a wine. Like puberty is is malolactic. I think if the wine is going to go through malolactic, you should let it go through malolactic fermentation. Um, So I think sulfites is quite an important thing because it, it actually changes quite a lot of the wine's tasting features.
0: In terms of the market... What is the advantage of selling natural wines? You've done some work with Elliotts and at Hibiscus doing natural wine-focused programs. So what is easy or challenging about doing that kind of program?
1: For me, in my opinion, I think natural wines actually lend themselves really well to food pairing. Um, I find them, very often, people don't really focus on oak, so they tend to be sort of you know, slightly lighter, uh, less extracted, often less alcoholic. So they're actually quite versatile. I think they respect the food, particularly if you work, you know, with maybe purer kitchens, you know, where it's not really all about like heavy sauces and things like this, but maybe more, you know, slightly more creative, lighter, or maybe more Nordic, then I find natural wine actually are are quite easy to pair with food. It's always amazing to be able to to share wines with people that maybe they're not familiar with um, and also get them get them to really enjoy, enjoy the wine so I think I, I find it always a, a really exciting experience when, when somebody tries natural wines for the you know for the first time so I think there's also the, the aspect of, of the discovery if people don't really know what it is but of course it comes with challenges you know sometimes you do get people who are completely not into it and they don't really you know want to taste it and and you know I think you just need to be really adaptable as well and and you know not force it down literally down people's throat if that's not what they want to be uh, drinking N- you know natural wine has a there's a community out there right it's, it's almost a bit of a it's, a it's not a huge community but there's this underworld of people who are really into you know the the origin of what they eat um, they want to drink uh wine that that they know is is made organically And naturally, Um, and there's a big following, you know, people will, people will go to these places and definitely there is there's a market for it.
0: So what draws those people? Is it some of the things we've been talking about today? Do people come in and say, I'm looking for a wine with native yeast and no sulfur, or is it less technical than that? Is it wanting to be part of this community or is it wanting to do something closer to the earth or why is it that people decide to seek this out?
1: So if I look at the profile of the people who come to the fair right who are the people who actually come to all these restaurants I'd say that the, the vast majority are sort of quite young like in you know in 30s 40s uh, they are the type of people who will really um enjoy maybe sort of you know independent artists independent music but they're not necessarily wine drinkers actually that's the beauty of it they're not wine geeks they're not they don't necessarily know a lot about know classic regions or they don't they haven't had a lot of experience tasting wines and they are coming to wine i think and, and to wine through natural wine because they find that the wines are actually quite approachable because the environment is always really relaxed um, and i think all of this actually maybe also you know helps
0: have you seen wines that are stylish or hip at this time talked about as natural when you know that perhaps they aren't
1: yeah of course Particularly when it comes to the farming, and and also I mean let's go back to our friend you know sulfites for example I've I've got people who say oh we don't add any sulfites can we come to your fair or oh, we're very low and I get the analysis and actually I realize that they are you know in the nineties or the hundreds and they are actually red wines and I'm thinking mm. and and these are they, these would be growers that would be perceived as, as as natural wines which is why I think it's really important to have clarity and transparency. Because nothing is written on the label, so actually it's okay to just say anything, you know. Um It's like saying with the farming that you're natural, but actually you don't even farm naturally. So there it is a bit messy. You know, it is a bit messy, it is a bit confusing.
0: So for you, what's a good natural wine?
1: Well, first of all, it's a wine which is released on the market when it's ready, okay. Um, I think we um there is there is a lot of um you know pressure in terms of cash flow for a lot of these growers, and there's you know there's pressure for them to sometimes release the wines before they're ready uh, because they need more space in the cellar uh, because they need money because the market you know is running out of wine you know you know there's obviously a commercial pressure there, which means that sometimes wines will be released within six months or eight months uh, and they haven't gone through the proper maturing process so for me I like a wine when it you know when I drink it I'm not I'm not a big fan of mousiness for example I've got very little time for this so you know if the wine is mousy you know when I work in a restaurant and I buy a wine which is which is mousy I either put an allocation on that wine and I wait maybe for a year uh, or you know I don't work with it because then I know that suddenly the wine is you know other people will serve it and and then that's fine if I personally buy a wine which is bousy, it doesn't really bother me because I think the reduction in the bottle over time will will disappear um but I think that we you know particularly if you work in the industry, I think it's our it's our duty to put a wine in front of you which is you know in in which is ready so that's that's you know i guess number one in terms of what I would classify as a really good natural wine is people who can and who will as much as possible. Wait until you know un- until the wine is, is ready. But I understand it's not always possible.
0: So, what is your experience of the raw fair? You've done it for several years in London. You did it in Berlin. Now you're going to do it in New York. What's it been like trying to organize what I imagine are a lot of big personalities?
1: Yeah, uh, to be honest, the the, the biggest challenge of organizing organizing the event is not necessarily to bring it overseas and 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 deal with a you know new culture, new venues, and new new challenges and legalities and so on is the growers, because we're dealing with, like you say, you know, the big personalities or or or, you know, highly individual, they don't really, they, some of them don't even really want to be on, on, on their computer and answer emails. So there's a lot of work which is involved, you know, with, with trying to, to, to help growers, you know, get their samples across, um, giving us all the information because, you know, we are quite, you know, we're quite, we, we, you know we are a pain in, in, in their backside um, a lot of the time because we, we want analysis for all their cuvees. Uh, some people don't do it, so they have to to get analysis done. There's a lot of paperwork involved in coming to the fair. They have to be motivated, you know, to come to, to and be part of it. And that takes a lot of a lot of um, headspace, particularly when then you work across, you know, two and now three events. But apart from that, you know, what's what's really amazing with 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 the fair with raw wine fair is, is to hear the stories of. You know how they meet people, how they make connections. Um, I was, you know, a, a while ago I went to to Moscow and Saint Petersburg, um, and a lot of the wines there had been imported because people came to the fair and they found the growers, and now they've, you know, they're, now they're working with these wines, and now they're getting drunk in Saint Petersburg. You know, I mean that is really awesome. You know, to to know that actually. And I, I never actually really hear about that because there's always so much going on and they come and then they leave. And then when I come back and see them or I meet people, and like, oh, yeah, yeah, we met them at Raw Wine Fair. And, you know, for me, that is the great, greatest achievement, you know, of the fair is, is how we really help people connect uh, with, you know, with a, a much bigger community, you know. And, and that's really always why it was created. And, and, and when you know that it's actually working, um, you know, then I feel really, really proud and really happy.
0: Are there a lot of producers who are at this point having trouble finding markets in the natural wine idiom?
1: Yes, they are, because I think, you know, they, there is um you know there's no denying it. I mean, we are looking at a very fashionable niche. Um, and I think some growers have become quite cultish and, and people, you know, they, they get obsessed with, with I mim. Mean, well, Talking of Auvernois, I think is a very good example of people really getting obsessed with with trying to get hold of bottles. And I think sometimes, you know, people forget that actually there is. If you take the time to go and visit, you know, wine fairs. If you take the time and you know to to go and and you know go, go out maybe to France if you can, or you know there is a wealth of, of 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 talent out there which is not represented here. And and I think, you know, it's it's. Uh, it's always the danger is to just become complacent and just focus on a few names. But actually, there, there are a lot more people, you know, for example, at, at Raw, we have um, probably about 40 growers who are coming who don't have agents, um, you know, who need, who need support, who need distribution. So, you know, even though we are probably quite saturated and, and a lot of growers run out of cuvées, there's still, there are more, there are more people out there, more growers.
0: It seems to me one of the real draws of um, several wines in the natural wine grouping is that the price was right, especially coming after the 08-09 financial downturn in this country. You saw a lot of movement to Crue Beaujolais, which people had sort of resisted before. They'd been getting village Pinot Noir, uh, and pouring that, and then they couldn't pour it anymore because there was really not a lot of money around. Um, And I think it really propelled a lot of people into this, this category that maybe they'd been poo-pooing before at least that's what i saw myself so as the price goes up with more demand what are we going to see like as these wines move in the direction of Clos Rougeard or ovumois or capilano where now they're quite known they're sought after and they're more expensive are people going to follow and keep going up
1: i guess that's a worry i mean there there are two aspects to this because obviously um you know wines are some of the wines are are getting more expensive and i think you're probably ruling out you know some some drinkers that maybe initially were following you but now actually the the wines have become you know more expensive it's always a question of knowing actually you know also who's making the margin because yes maybe some growers are, are are increasing their margin a little bit but i've i've heard you know of of sometimes you know the middle people are, are adding more margin because the wine is so famous and so rare that actually then now they can get away with charging a lot more for the wine. So it's also where, where is the increase coming from? You know, on the other hand, um, I do believe that a lot of these growers undercharge for for their work um, and the money they charge for that bottle of wine is not representative of the amount of, of, of work. And a lot of them are actually struggling in terms of being able to, to cover their costs and you know, grow or maybe buy a bit more land or pay back the the the, the, the debt. So, you know, I think that the, the question is what is the fair price for a bottle of wine? You know, actually are we maybe used to having wine as a commodity for five bucks, you know, because there are wines that you can maybe produce for five bucks because you produce two million bottles. Um, so it almost seems to me like they're more than just one wine. You know, we, we put everything under the same category Um. But I, 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 from seeing how the you know how they live, um, how how much of a struggle it is, I think a lot of them undercharged for their work clearly because they cannot survive, you know, uh, doing what they do. You know, you you are seeing some some growth, who really are struggling. So it also like, you know, are we are we charging too little for wine? I mean, is wine should it's like food? You know, if food wasn't subsidized so heavily, you'd be like the same model as you're in Norway, where it's. Uh, very expensive to just buy a bag, a bag of potatoes because it's not subsidized. So I think it's it's also the the the, the for me that's a, that's also um, you know an interesting question is just to look at what it, what is a fair price for a bottle of wine made made like this you know where where people are you know doing everything everything by hand low yields uh, con- continuously you know watching over it and you know making you know high quality stuff, which is very, you know, demanding, you know, how much is that worth?
0: So when I look around the world, sometimes I see areas that are real hotbeds of natural wine, at least so it seems to me from afar and others that are not at all. And I suppose there's probably multiple reasons for that. That could be legislative. It could be the local market. It could be climate conditions, but is there a set of factors that are really important for developing a natural wine scene in a place? In other words, are there some places where it's just not going to work out because some of the prereqs are not there? Or are there some places that could really come forward in the idiom that maybe haven't yet for some reason?
1: For example, if you look at places in Eastern Central Europe, you know, you have it's it is changing a little bit, but it's it's really amazing to see that you have um, like, for example, like uh, Hungary or Slovenia, where you have beautiful terroir, where you have you know, very old vineyards where you have very specific, indigenous, interesting grape varieties. Um, but because of, obviously, you know, history and political situation and, and 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 certain regimes have kind of like really sort of crushed a lot of the tradition and the, a lot of the knowledge. People have kind of lost a lot of the know-how and they're now beginning to rediscover that. Uh, so I think there is... You know, for me, an area I go over to a lot and I'm keeping an eye on is are, are these countries. Because, you know, if you look at certain vineyards in in, in Slovenia uh, or, or rather maybe Serbia, um, you know, you have you have such a tremendous potential on the grounds. Um, you don't really have that much of a know-how quite yet because they kind of forgot how, what it was like to make, you know, quality wine. Um you know, because of communism or, or or other. And also there's no demand for it. So they are in this situation where they've got this tremendous potential on the ground. There's no demand for quality wine. There's definitely no demand for natural wine because actually, by law, you cannot get a, a bottle out if it's slightly cloudy or you have to, you know, filter it and, and find it and, and so on. So they, in this predicament where actually it's incredibly difficult, even if you wanted to, you know, make a natural wine, but it is changing and I think the demand is growing and, and you know, there is places in Slovakia, for example, where you're, you're getting more and more really interesting wines coming out of, of there, for example. So I think, you know, it is changing, but there are places that are really challenged because even if they really want to, there's no one to buy the wines anyway, you know. So that's an interesting, uh, interesting part of Europe.
0: What do you think the appeal is amongst the French for natural wine, like at the consumer level? Why is it taken off so well there?
1: Has it been driven by by also a, a really budget, you know, really great food scene? Uh, people, you know, I think I think if you really are into into food, into your ingredients, you know, the natural progression will be to 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 look into you know the wine scene, and I think they go hand in hand. And maybe this explosion of really good places to eat has brought along people who are really into into natural wines, and that's kind of you know, brought together a much bigger much bigger picture. You know, for sure in London, the, the natural wine scene has been driven by the by the food scene uh, where we are seeing a lot more, um, you know, young chefs rediscovering British cuisine, uh, focusing on very simple ingredients, but focusing on proper farming and sourcing, you know, great stuff. They've got interested in, in natural wine and, and they're, they're bringing, you know, natural wines on, on, onto their list. So I think they, they are very, very, very well connected. And in fact, I think, you know, if you're traveling, when I, if I want to know where to eat, I always look out for a natural wineist because, you know, most of the time a natural wine is going to bring a good kitchen. They really go together, I think.
0: Where do you see the natural wine scene moving in the future?
1: So I think, um, you know, nat- natural wine will just establish itself and but will remain a, you know, a niche category. I, I don't see it as, you know, growing... Hugely, because you know the the very nature of, of 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 what it is, um, you know I will see, you know what I would like to see is is, is some form of, of definition, some some form of understanding, in terms of what is a um a, what is a natural wine, so people cannot you know use this word sort of you know as they please just because it sounds great and maybe it's not natural, maybe maybe it's something else, um. The biggest reason why I created Raw and why I do what I do is I feel that the the at the moment people who drink wine do not get a choice in terms of what they're drinking. You know, I don't like the fact that there's zero transparency in 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 the wine world. I think that um, you know I'm really clear that people need to farm organically. We don't need wine to feed the world. There's no reason why we should be polluting the planet. Just to produce wine, so I think that is, you know, I'm I'm quite, um, you know, I can be quite militant about about organics, you know, in a way that I'm not about a lot of other stuff, but I think organic is really important. What people do in the cellar, I actually really don't care, and I I have no, you know, I'm clear about what I like drinking. If people want to use yeasts and sulfites and all sorts of gadgetries and you know, equipment to, to do exactly what they want. I think that that's their prerogative and they should just do that. My issue is that we don't know of what is going on. It's quite shocking that, you know, wine is something you ingest in your body and actually you have no way of knowing what went on in, in, in the winery. And in a way, I think when we achieve transparency, maybe there's not going to be any need for a word like natural wine. You know, because it'll just be wine, and then you'll be able to to actually choose. You know, oh, I'm not going to drink this because they've added this, this, and this. So may- maybe we don't need all this. You know, trying to you know establish this category or whatever, because in a way, then it will be maybe it will be relevant. You know, I, I think for me, the big the big challenge right now is is is, is to promote transparency, full disclosure of what went on in the winery. This is not going to come from the wine industry. It's not going to be coming from, from, from people making wine. You know, I think the lobbying is too big. It's going to have to come from people who drink wine. And I think this is really what needs to happen next. Is people really need to start asking questions. They need to understand that, you know, there are several types of wines and they need to, to be able to freely decide that I'm going to be spending 20 bucks on this because this is what I want to be drinking. You know, that for me, that is the big, that is the big thing. I actually really don't care what people do.
0: Isabelle Legrand of The Natural Wine Book and also The Raw Wine Fair has taken a discussion that she had in her own family home and brought it across the world. Thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Isabelle Legrand of Natural Wine and also The Raw Wine Fair. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Erin Skella has contributed original pieces.